Because, by the way, for anyone that didn't know, at one point you were in your early 20s in the 90s, you were earning half a million gross a year. Yeah, yeah. With, in no criminal activity at all. Yeah. So even though I made all that money in the drugs, I lost absolutely everything by making that fatal decision to import ecstasy. Do you remember your first ecstasy experience well? Gang members are coming up to me saying, you've got to get that look of shock off your face. You've got to put... What do you think kept you alive in prison? Well, man, I've got my life back. I was facing 200 years at the peak of it. And for the entire duration of my drug taking from mid to late 90s till the SWAT team comes May 16, 2002. And we were joke, we were above the law. They're never gonna catch us. The war on drugs is tearing the fabric of society apart. What the media doesn't tell you, it's mostly young people in drug gangs competing for the black market profit in drugs created by drug laws. I saw the horror of what drug use led to in the prison where 90% were injecting heroin and yeah. crystal meth. And that was my wake-up call. What I'd done, I'd put people on that road of drug use. So I knew I couldn't change my past. And that was why I resolved to go out and share my story. Through doing a true crime podcast, all I've learned. Yeah. You must be blown away at the audience you have there. Uh, what is my best quality? Isn't it? Well, this is the best. My newfound modesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Happiness is in your thoughts. Always remember to smell the roses and appreciate the small things in life. You didn't use at all when you were in there. You learned more than you ever learned before. Just be that, that's quite funny. Arizona prison handshake is that one, then that one, that and one. then they're bumping. Cool. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Right, just don't kill me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our sponsor for this episode is Spacemade. Spacemade offer flexible workspaces throughout the UK and they currently have the following London locations Queen's Park, The Strand, Fitzrovia. Swiss Cottage and London Fields, as well as City Centre Leeds and City Centre Bristol. To find out more, do check out their website at www.spacemade.co. And finally, I would like to give a big thank you to the whole team there. I really am grateful for your support you've given us from day one, and it really won't be forgotten. If you are looking for a great space to work, guys, do check them out via the links in the description below. And for any direct inquiries, you can email them via info at spacemade.co. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Yeah. So, I mean, first question was like, what, what was your childhood like? So who Sean was? <laughs> okay. I, don't, I still don't think I know who I am today. Well, we can work well, on Well, what it. I mean by that is, you know... you know, <laughs> My childhood. What, yeah, what was your childhood like? Because like, the reason why I asked that is because I'm sure it will lead into yeah. maybe how, how you fell into certain things. Because this, this is not a conventional... Crim criminal situation, shall we, shall, yeah. shall we say, in the sense you didn't you didn't scream like your environment would encourage criminal activity or anything like that. So, grew up in a little town called Widnes, yeah. which has got a rugby league team called the Chemics, yeah, because Widnes predominantly manufactured chemicals. And in the beginning, I was in an area called Appleton Village, which is more near the centre of the town. So, my mum back then was a housewife. And my dad went door to door selling insurance. And I was at a school called St. Bede's, Catholic school. My nan was very religious. And I then went to St. Joseph's High School. But when I went to high school, I was one of the last to grow, I would say, in my year group. Okay. So I got the shit beat out of me by the rugby players. Okay. So the point were, I was so scared to go to the breaks. I was hiding out in the technical drawing room. So, you know, as a young person, I had a zest for life. 
then I went for a period of anxiety getting beat up by the rugby players. But then when I went to sixth form college, I grew and discovered the rave scene shortly thereafter and became this party person because my anxiety went away when I took ecstasy. Of course, yeah. Do you, and I do wouldn't you... stop dancing and talking to people and <laughs> well, meet, And before you just, well, you're saying you just had no confidence at all, so this was such a breakthrough for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm just talking to complete strangers all night long, telling them my life story and they're telling me that. Do, do you remember when, do you remember your first ecstasy experience well? Oh my God, yeah. How old were you? So I was at uni. Um, my mate out of economics class was like coming to the Thunderdome on Oldham Road in Manchester. And um, it was just a big square room. Now, at this period of time, in musical history, there was like a dance music revolution. Which so we're talking. This was early like 90s? this was like I, I left the country in ninety one for America, so this was late eighties. Okay. So all of a sudden, on the TV every weekend, the news headlines was the police, like chasing like ravers and like motorways as far as you could see, as far as you could see back and forward convoys of ravers so all these wide-eyed young people sweating grinning smiling yeah. that, that was like the, the, the news headlines every weekend it was just sweeping the country mm -hmm. so i was like what is going on and my mate gary's like come to this club you got to check this out so i'm like yeah i want a piece of this yeah yeah because you know young people were breaking into warehouses breaking into airplane hangars worrying what the hell they wanted because prior to that to get in a nightclub, you had to wear a shirt and tie and get in the queue. Like you're dressed now. Yeah, but often the, the snooty bouncers would be like, you can't even get in and you yeah, have to yeah. wait for ages. Yeah, yeah. And people were sick of that. Mm -hmm. And this was this like old music from the 80s that they were playing. And all of a sudden, this new music came where you could wear what, what the hell you wanted. People were just wearing like hippie stuff, psychedelic colours and all kinds. And you're breaking into places to dance. So it's like, you know, borderline criminal, running away from the police, all this excitement. So he says, come to the Thunderdome. Get to the Thunderdome. It is a burr square room. And there's people like just stood around the walls and they're just looking at the dance floor as if expecting an elephant to materialize. And I'm thinking this looks really boring. Nobody's even dancing, what's going on? So my mate's like, let's get some drugs. So we go to some, I think they were like Salford skinheads and he's kind of have a gram of Billy Whiz and two grams of Billy Whiz, one, from, you know, one each and, and mm -hmm. two E's. For people who don't know what's Billy Whiz. So Billy Whiz is a, a gram of speed and a little wrap of paper. Okay. And then the E's were the little pills. So I'm looking around the room thinking, you know, I've never done a drug deal before. <laughs> are we, are we going to get... Well, how old are you at this point? Um... So at university then, I was like... So 1920s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I'm before like, that, never really dabbled with drugs? No, no. No they weed, didn't, no didn't smoke, didn't really drink. Yeah. Um, so looking around the room, thinking, we're just, we're going to get... I've been watching Miami Vice. Yeah. <laughs> if you watch Miami Vice, it always ends bad for people in drug deals. Yeah. So I was thinking, any minute, we're just handcuffs are coming out, or we're, we're going to get nabbed, or these guys are going to rip us off. So they just like pass the drugs and the cash really fast, these sulfur skinheads. And my mate's like, come on, let's go to the toilets. So back then everyone drank, I think it was Lucas Aid. So 
I got this pill, neck it, got this powder, neck in that. Yeah. And um, go back out into this burr square room where nothing's happening. And this music sounds really weird. Because, mm-hmm. like, you got your 80s music and then you've got, like, And to me, who's never heard anything like that before, I'm thinking, this is like fucking signals from outer space. Yeah. This is not making any sense to my mind. So, my mate, like, he got high before me and he started smiling and, and then more and more people started to dance. And he's like, come on, dance. And I'm like, I was terrified to dance. I was so self-conscious and anxious, I was terrified to dance. Even at the high school disco, Forcing myself to get up there was like my, my biggest fear. So I'm like terrified to dance. And um, he just buggers off and starts dancing. And more and more people now are dancing. So I walk to the bar and all of a sudden my knees just go. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Get that tingle. Yeah. <laughs> tingling all over and I've yeah, got to yeah. sit down. So I'm sat down then just on the floor and like, People just walking around me. I can see these baggy jeans and British night sneakers. And um, people just start looking down at me and smiling. And they've got the exact same smile I've got. And then I understand it. I'm like, I get this now. And then all my body's starting to feel warm and fuzzy. And then the music, they're boop, 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 boop. All that is now making sense. It's like, you need to get off your ass and yeah, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my mate finds me, he looks down, he's got the same smile. Same smile. We don't even have to say anything. We just know. I just go up then, dance. And I start copying the moves of the other people dancing around me. And from being absolutely terrified of dancing, I was enjoying it so much, I didn't even want to get off the dance floor to have a pee. <laughs> I, I was like holding it in just to keep dancing. And I never, ever wanted the party yeah. to end. And I swore that that became my religion from that moment. And over the, the months and years I did it in the UK, I swore, you know, when I go to America, because I was so determined to be successful in the stock market, mm. I was going to transfer that scene over to America. I suppose, do you think that was the first time you felt you are at one with a group and you're amongst peers? Yeah, yeah. Which is quite a qualification I've, I've, for someone who was insecure as well. Always being a misfit, you know. Um, I, I did start to get girlfriends around the sixth form college age and that, that gave me more confidence. Mm. But um, going in pubs and stuff, you know, I wouldn't talk to people. But... This is a story of two people as well. It's the other person is Wildman. So Wildman was the opposite of me. Yeah. Everywhere he went, people just noticed him because he was so big. Yeah. And he would and just, this was sorry, just to clarify, this yeah. was this was your mate. This was my best mate from with, childhood. Being with you this whole journey, everything, yeah. the criminal activity, the the prisons, everything. So, so when I was a teenager, I was part of a clique of of boys. Um, we called ourselves the Sweats. We okay. watched too many American street gang movies like yeah, The yeah. Wanderers and The Warriors. And Wildman's oldest brother was the head of the sweats. And Wildman wanted to join. And he'd say, yeah, you can join if you do this, you can do that. And then he would beat him up and send him home. So in the end, I felt so sorry for Wildman, who was two years younger than me, which is a lot of age difference when you're a kid. So I splintered off from the sweats to be with him and his cousin, Hammy. And those friendships that we formed then, we would go to a quarry at the top of my town, Witness, um, in an area called Pex Hill, get through the iron railings, and we would sit on a tree that was like, oh, it hung over the quarry, so there was a huge drop, and we called it the thinking tree. <laughs> and that's where we set our life goals. Okay. And I said to them, they said, you know, what are you going to do? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to America, make a million in the stock market. Mm. 
by the time I'm 30, I'm going to fly you guys over. And then we asked Wildman what was his life goal. He said he was going to go to prison. And we said, why? And he said he's got red dots in his head telling him to hurt people. And he did. He, he did go to prison. And it was years later I flew him out. And Hammy ended up coming out as well two times. So he said at a young age that he was aware that he felt he was going to hurt people. Oh, he was already hurting people. In his high school, he picked the teacher up and just put him in, in the trash dumpster. And the school, was, the teachers were then so scared of him, they had him outside raking leaves. So then he would just go downtown on the weekends and fight the bouncers. And he would come he back. He just loved to fight, basically. Loved it, yeah. He would come back looking like a bus had hit him or a train had hit him. His face would be swollen out here, just completely black and blue. Got any idea what that stems from? Not to like over psychoanalyze, psycho but. What, because his brother beat him up? You thought he was just... Um, that's probably a contributory factor because he said to me he couldn't even have a wank in his house without getting a, a dig off his brother. Fucking hell. <laughs> Jesus but but Wildman died last year. He, yeah, I remember he, he seeing, lived seeing it, that, He lived yeah. it a, a big, a larger-than-life, um, fast-paced, massive amount of drugs uh, lifestyle. He, up until the end? Um, uh, well, he was drinking un until the end. Um, sadly, he couldn't quit the drinking. I'm sure that contributed to him, him, his his health decline because he was doing the podcast co-hosting with me, mm. and every time I would drop him off at the end of the podcast, he'd say, "You need can you stop at Bargain Booze right yeah. by my house?" And yeah. he'd just get liters and liters of cheap cider, drinking that every day. But then over the months as he was co-hosting the podcast, he kept making me park closer and closer to the Bargain Booze door until the end. The end, he was having me park in the handicap spot because he he could barely he was. He was going out of breath. He couldn't walk. Oh, is that bad? So, so yeah. Did you see? Did you see it coming? Like his death. So I did a video saying Wildman needs help and hospitalisation about six months before his death, and um, he he did try to get into hospital repeatedly, and because of the virus, they were saying that you know stay at home. But he also had a very his attitude was, you know, a very if brave... If I go, I go sort of thing. No, he had a very brave attitude of, um, there's all these old people need the hospital beds right now, so yeah. perhaps I shouldn't be going to hospital. Um, and then on the podcast, fluid started leaking through his legs and he was joking, saying, I'm going to bottle this and bless people. It's going to be my holy water. But when I Googled it, it's it's an ingredient from your blood. It's it's a bad it's a bad sign. It, yes, it's the kidney and liver just failing to such a degree. Degree your your body's excreting all sorts of chemicals. Exactly, that's what happened because he he ended up dying of multiple organ failure. And it, and would you say he was your best mate? Yeah, absolutely. Him and Hammy were, were my best mates since childhood. Well, yeah. I if you could. Have the ecstasy feeling again, would you do it? If no. there's no consequences? No. Because your body doesn't recover when you get older. And um, it was like a phase I went through. I like to be cognizant of my faculties. Mm -hmm. So when I was young and insecure and emotionally immature and had anxiety among other mental health issues that I didn't understand at the time, the ecstasy in a self-medication way was making all those problems go away for me temporarily. It was like a chemical fix. But I've worked on my root causes of my addiction problems. And by being sober, living around people for six years, some of whom were maniacs, that mm. cured my social anxiety as well to a degree. Mm. 
So I'm happy enough in my own skin now to go out and dance. Like before the pandemic, I was dancing at Two Brewers in Clapham, going to the clubs, some of the clubs in London. A few years ago, I went over to um, Ibiza. Just closed my eyes, listened to the vibe of the music, just dance. Do you get flashbacks? And um, when you hear that music, it just brings back all mm -hmm. that euphoria yeah so i think i've perhaps i've laid down my neural pathways yeah. in such a so way from taking so much ecstasy i can get there yeah that's amazing yeah yeah do you, do you think i mean you're so you're obviously so experienced in the drug thing do you think all drug taking is escapism i would say that there's a variety of reasons for drug taking mm -hmm. such yeah. as all right so childhood trauma through doing a true crime podcast and interviewing so many people, I've learned. Yeah. And hearing the sad stories of the prisoners as well, I've learned that many of them are on the hardest drug they could get their hands on at the time, which was heroin, because that puts them completely out of the zone of thinking about the trauma they've been through as kids. So if you're sexually abused as a kid and not given the tools to deal with it. You don't want any chance of remembering it, do you? No, you just yeah. fall back on drugs and, and that leads to criminality and leads to prison. It's really sad that so many of society's most vulnerable people end up in prison. Mm. And that was a wake up call for me. I thought prisons were pedophiles, murderers, rapists, serial killers, because that's what the media portrays on one hand. And on the other hand, they say that the prisons are easy. They got PlayStations, gourmet food, luxuries. And that keeps the public hating on the prison population. When I got into prison in America, I learned the average prisoner was like a black kid or a Mexican kid with a little bit of weed, getting like two to five year sentences. That's how they fill the private prisons. And, and that for you is the biggest crime of them all, right? The fact, the fact that someone's going for that. Our mission statement now on the YouTube channel is to end the war on drugs, to take all those resources and to investigate and incarcerate predators and the war on drugs has saw the mass incarceration of low-level drug users, people with addiction issues, and soldiers. More than half my friends in prison were soldiers, mm. come back from wars, traumatized, didn't get any help, and then self-medicated on street drugs and ended up in prison. It's, it's, it's a scam that the government's pulling on the taxpayers. What, what, and that goes back to the sort of age-old theory that the prison, prisons are a business at the end of the day. Prisons became a business in, I, think I would say, like the 1980s. Uh, George H.W. Bush, Bill, yeah. Bill Clinton, they locked up record levels of low-level drug users because before the mass incarceration of drug users, prisons and the police, the purpose of them was to arrest and incarcerate person A mm. who harms person B. If you go back millennia... So specifically harms person. Okay. Right. Yeah, if okay. you go back millennia, even to the Bible, how has crime been defined? Rape, robbery, yeah. murder. Yeah. There's always a person A harming a person B. Come the 80s, all of a sudden, you, you're arresting millions of people for weed possession. So let's say you arrest a young person for weed possession. Who's that person harming? Yeah. It's individual choice. Exactly. Yeah. So the whole purpose of prisons and the police has been subverted by the war on drugs and the profit incentive of not just the private prisons, but hundreds of other contractors, parasites, who are sucking tens of billions a year of taxpayers' money. And 
So I guess what you advocate a sort of Portuguese or Swiss model, decriminalization? The complete legalization of all drugs. Because if you look at drug laws presently, they have created the drug problem. Uh -huh. Now I learned that by writing all these books about Escobar. Escobar could source a kilo of coca paste out of Peru or Bolivia when he was getting started in the 1970s for $60. Because of drug laws, how much do you think he could sell a kilo of cocaine for in the 70s? I have no idea. $60,000. Drug laws made worthless plants more valuable than gold. And that's been the biggest incentive in the history of the world for criminal organizations to mass produce and flood the entire world with drugs, which gets stronger and more prolific and more dangerous every year. And now we've got fentanyl. And what's it gonna take? Something 10 times, 100 times stronger than fentanyl for the government to see the error of its ways. I just interviewed a psych uh, psychiatrist out of Canada. Mm -hmm. And he said the fentanyl was killing so many people where he works, he wishes he could go back to the good old days of heroin. <laughs> and, that's, that's this, and this is this is an iron law of economics. Yeah. Milton Friedman wrote to George H. W. Bush and said, "Here's what's going to happen." Richard Branson has campaigned to the UK government and said, "This is what's happened, and it's going to get worse." Law enforcement against prohibition leap. I'm an associate member of where cops, judges, prosecutors are all saying it's getting worse and worse. You've got to stop this. But so much money is being made off it. There's this huge war. There's too many powers that be, isn't there? They're profiting from the status quo, from people's death and suffering. It's horrible. They know from alcohol prohibition that it doesn't work. Mm. Over a decade later, alcohol prohibition, the mafia are running it. Al Capone's going around with machine guns. Murder, mayhem, violence are off the scale. Corruption's off the scale. So they stopped it. They've seen this exact same thing with, with drug laws, but they've not stopped it because they've learned to profit from it. Well, why, why is alcohol so much more convenient to be legal, though? Is, do you think it's because it's a... Like a slow burner, if you know what I mean. Not many people. It's an overnight issue, so they can't. They can't clamp. It almost works. It helps. It slows people down. It puts them. Puts people in a, in a state of God. How do I put it? I, I just think alcohol is a very convenient thing to be legal, if you know what I mean. Because <laughs> because it's it's just and don't get me wrong. I I love a drink and I love going to the pub. Mm. And, but there is that true moderation people need. But it seems to be the one that can wear away at people a bit. Just doesn't still stop people having their full potential. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because there was a professor who did a study for the Labour government about the dangers of all the various drugs. And he said that ecstasy was safer than horse riding, and they sacked him. But he had alcohol at the top of the danger, because alcohol it kills the most young people in the UK, is the drug that kills them. Three young people a week die from binge drinking in this country. It's the number one drug. Three young people will die three, a day? Three young people a week in really? this country die from binge drinking. Okay. So alcohol is the number one drug in the UK out of all drugs legal and legal that kills the most young people. And that doesn't count then that alcohol is the number one drug in all in murder and all violent crime. So then you've got all the young people who die through um, murder and, and violent crime. Then you've got the fact that alcohol is also the number one drug in all sex crime, ranging from date rape to paedophilia, but the government is profiting from it. So it's ingrained in us that it's socially acceptable from a young age. And like you said, you know, in moderation, you like it, it helps you relax, whatever. Yeah. But it is a double-edged sword because you've got all these other negatives as well. But also, I also, you know, we were literally talking about it on the way here, but moderation often, often leads to this thing where you're never quite an addict, but you're always 
damaging yourself a bit and it wears away at you as much as say your friend Wildman, or that sounds like he was quite excessive with the alcohol and i think that's a danger but it is like you said who knows who knows what the answer is there i mean would you would you ban alcohol no my thing is that we need more education and less incarceration yeah so people young people need to be aware the reality of all the dangers of all of the different drugs. The government should be in control of all of the different drugs, not criminal organisations. Then that removes the danger of backstreet deals, you getting ripped off, you getting attacked. Bad quality. SWAT team coming, yeah. bad quality. So I was on a TV show, right, and um, they put, put me on with a woman whose daughter died from ecstasy. Mm. And I think they thought we were going to be at loggerheads. Sure. But um, she said that her daughter would still be alive if the drug was legal because she would have known what she was taking. Yeah. She didn't know the size of the dose. I think she managed to get pure ecstasy, but it was 10 doses or something like that that she took at one time. So we, we hugged at the end and she had tears in her eyes and she said what I was saying about campaigning for drug laws to be changed was completely true and she, she's campaigning for the same thing. Wow. Um, so, you know, you're talking about young, I, I mean, when you talk, by the way, I've noticed that you clearly have quite a concern for, for young people, generally speaking. Yeah. Is, and, and I admire that a lot because part of the reason why we even do this is because of that. Mm -hmm. um, but is, is your number one fear for young people, the war on drugs? The war on drugs? Or I suppose the, the fact that it's not decriminalised and it makes it more dangerous. Is that your number one fear the for young people? The war on drugs people? is tearing the fabric of society apart. Drug laws are responsible for the majority of knife crime in London, violence all over the world, and hundreds of thousands of people dead in Mexico. Mm. What the media doesn't tell you when you see all these knife murders in London is it's mostly young people in drug gangs competing for the black market profit in drugs created by drug laws. Okay. And and I guess... Is there, is there one stand-up piece of advice from your experience that you would say to younger people who to not fall into that trap? So, the trap of dealing or taking drugs? Both, really. Because some, some people argue, you know, take a drug here and then have a great experience. It gives you a newfound understanding of life. I, I, I believe that adults should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies mm. and not be incarcerated for choosing to take drugs. When it comes to young people, the brains are still developing. They're emotionally immature. And I think they need more education in the consequences of what can happen to them if they take I drugs. Always, I always wonder if people should be, like, say if drugs were legal. Yeah. I'd make, I'd make the, the age bracket about 25 because you're so developed then. It's a much better way to approach it. Whereas that, that late adolescent teen situation, yeah, that, that sounds, seems to be a real vulnerability. That sounds sensible, yeah. Yeah, yeah it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Because how, how many, I don't know about you, but how, I know plenty of, or met plenty of people who smoked weed. And they smoked it from that late teen era up into the early 20s. You can, you can see it. it does prolong adolescence. You can see it in the body. You can see yeah. it in the brain. So, you know, talking about the young people thing again, mm -hmm. We we touched on on your what you were as what you were as a kid or what was your childhood like, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess people, some people will be baffled that you fell into the drug lifestyle mm. and and selling drugs ended up being criminal because arguably you had it easier than some. Although I don't agree yeah. with that. I think when it comes down to everybody has their personal battles and everything else. But why do you think you fell into it so much? 
So, have you heard me use this term, gangsteritis? I think so. All right. So I was a little nerd, right, in the, in the stock market, ended up as a stockbroker. Because, but if anyone didn't know, at one point you were in your early 20s, in the 90s, you were only half a million gross a year. Yeah, yeah. With, in no criminal activity at all. Yeah, so I was just a, a stock market nerd. Yeah. A maths guy. Yeah. Looking at the numbers. and um, But when Wildman did come over after he'd served his prison sentence in the UK, and he... Um, Everywhere he went, he made friends with, like, the most dangerous people and the street people. Who just magnated towards him, yeah. Yeah, they magnated. They he was like a magnet to them. Okay. They, they were all just coming to his house. Everything from, like, Native American street walking sex workers to, like, Russian mafia and Italian mafia and, and later on New Mexico mafia people, gangbangers and a whole range in between. It was such such an eclectic thing, to, and they were all on ecstasy. You know, I'm bringing all this ecstasy and this new drug. So meeting those characters during Wildman's first visit, while I was still a stockbroker, I would say that triggered my gangsteritis. I'd already watched various movies about the mafia. I, I, I'm I'm guessing now that perhaps Casino and Goodfellas and Scarface were published um, by then. I'm not 100% sure, but movies of that genre. Um, I'd watch Miami Vice, you know how exciting that was. And um, then I'm on drugs, talking to real-life gangsters, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'm in a movie? Yeah. And for the entire duration of my drug-taking from mid to late 90s till the SWAT team comes May 16, 2002... Me and my crew are joking, you know, we're in a movie, we're above the law, we're like characters out of something like Pulp Fiction and all this stuff. That's, and the drugs, so, that's the drugs so glamorous was, to a 21-year-old, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, the drugs was telling us this. Yeah. The drugs had scrambled our decision-making processes, and it was telling us, you're so cool, you know, you've got this big <laughs> house on a mountain, you've got this, you know, bisexual wife, and um, the drugs is just feeding the madness. Yeah. Yeah, but the gangsters were there in our lives. It, it was very real, and you don't see the danger because when you're on drugs, you've got you know like whiskey muscles, but you've got your crystal meth muscles. Sure. Up. You've got your whatever. You you think you know you're invincible, and we were joke. We were above the law. They're never going to catch us. So so you just think it was pure greed, glamour, and I guess addiction in part. Greed, glamour, naivety. Luck that I'm still alive. The amount of dangerous situations. When I was, I was reading, when I'm about halfway through Hard Time, and the amount, and obviously I've watched loads of your content. The amount of close calls you had to death is insane. And close calls to like big arrests as well yeah. over the years as well. Yeah, the amount of arrests you missed. Yeah, the Guardian Angel. I mean, that, yeah, I was gonna say that makes you yeah. believe in God or the power of the universe at the very least. <sighs> Somebody was watching out for me. A wild man's watching out for me now. Yeah, he is. Yeah, um, yeah I mean. Just looking back now, it's probably one of the reasons I just wake up with a smile on my face. I'm alive. I've got my life back. I was facing 200 years at the peak of it. When you're facing 200 years, that was the turning point then that crushed the materialistic, you know, your million-dollar house on a mountain doesn't matter if you're facing 200 years. Your swimming pool, your twin turbo Mazda RX-7. All you want then is to get your life back. 
So when I did finally get sentenced to nine and a half years, that was one of the happiest days of my life because I could see I was actually going to get out. Because at the low, I thought, right, I'm never going to get out. I might as well just kill myself. What's the point in, in spending the rest of your life in an environment like this? And you were close to doing that, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I planned to do it after I guarded a security walk just to slash my wrists and bleed out. But I was I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends. Mm. And what I mean, I had seven photos of my mum, dad, girlfriend, sister. I'm looking at them and I got really sad. And um, I couldn't bear the thought. I put my mum through that. Yeah. Getting a phone call saying you, your son's slashed his wrist in a foreign jail. So that's what stopped me from doing it. Do you think that was also a turnaround moment? Yeah, definitely. I credit being pushed to the brink of suicidal insanity with saving my life by crushing the English Sean materialistic person who was addicted with gangsterisis out of me and forcing me to look inside myself and address the root causes of my addiction and making me see the suffering of the prisoners yeah. whereby I started to help other people because my behaviour was narcissistic, uh, hedonistic, just want to get high, get my party friends high. That's, that's all it was until my arrest. But then I started to help the prisoners and that, that positive energy put a, put a break on my ego. Yes, I was going to say, it's, it's losing the ego is the number one, isn't it? Well, my ego was as big as the Grand Canyon, wasn't it, at the yeah, peak of it? of course. Um, the untouchable. Yeah, yeah. But um, you have to be reduced to nothing. You have to, you have to lose absolutely everything, all your do, assets. Do you think most people have to go through that? When I said you, perhaps that was a loose term. I, I had to. I had to. Yeah. I was wild, though, wasn't I? Perhaps many people have lived sensible lives that haven't led to the consequences I've brought <laughs> yeah, true, upon, but, my, brought upon no, myself. But I do, I do, the amount of people who say, until you get to a lowest point, whatever that is for each individual person, it could be quite high for someone else, yeah. but whatever that low situation is, you really won't know what you're capable of and, and where you can go until you get to that point. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. true. It's just how you... I know you're quite a big fan of Nietzsche and that concept of how you perceive things is totally based on yourself. Yeah. And that, 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 that really makes sense. When, when was the... Last time you used? So that would have been before the SWAT team came. I met a woman, fell in love, and she taught me out of the importation of the ecstasy. So I thought I got away with it. I quit importing ecstasy a year before the SWAT team came. But I, I, I was naive to the statute of limitations, whereby all it takes is someone to go to the cops and say, I did a drug deal with him, and then they've got you. They mm. don't, they don't, I thought they had to catch you with the drugs. They don't have to catch you with the drugs. And is that is that exclusive to the US, or can that happen here? I think it's worse here. In Arizona, there's a seven-year statute of limit on drug offences. Fine, so after that, if you're think, accused, you're I think you're in fine. the UK, there's no statute of limitations. And, and sorry, going back to the point about drug taking, so that, before that, so was it when you were, that year where you stopped dealing, were you still taking drugs? Yeah, because I couldn't address my inner demons. I was still leaving my girlfriend in the apartment in Scottsdale. And sneaking out with Wild Man and G Dog and my party friends and getting high. And just just for context, Scottsdale was where you in, in Arizona where you were, and what's quite an isolated place. Is that when right? the SWAT team came? Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, just a normal apartment complex. Yeah, Scottsdale is quite nice though. Yeah, would you would you say that was the worst day of your life? Um, I would say that that was perhaps one of the days when my adrenaline spiked the most. Okay. Uh, Even took, more than when, you, when you're on drugs, yeah. It took yeah. me 
perhaps three or four days. My adrenaline was so high for three or four days, I could not sleep. I tried, and my heart was just going like that all night long, do, 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 against the mattress. But, but not necessarily the worst day. Well, <laughs> on, as it was happening, I might have considered it a bad day, but now I credit it with saving my life. Yeah. And that's interesting that it's like, because you say the same with when you you nearly, nearly committed suicide. So I always try and ask people who've been in tough situations like yourself, is, is there is there that distinct moment of worst day in your life? But, but you... I've got you, multiples. You, you've got multiples and you see them all as a, really a, move, a, le a lesson and a move upwards. Yeah, absolutely. I was living such a dangerous lifestyle that perhaps if those things hadn't happened, I may have ended up dead. I know various situations whereby I was that close. Yeah. So, so on the addiction front, do you, you, obviously, how do I ask this? You help kids. You speak to kids nowadays. You go to, you go to schools. But yeah. Is that specifically about addiction or, the, or just your general experience? I just go in and scare the living daylights out of them with my story. Do you think that works? Yeah, because the teachers tell me the kids who stay behind are the hardest to reach students, and one kid even. Uh, I just spoke to her recently, actually. She was so inspired by my talk, she went on to do a criminology degree at Winchester Uni. Really? Parents invited me to graduation. I had a meal with them and everything. And um, she, in return, she sent me a book by Johan Harry, Chasing the Scream, about the war on drugs. Yeah. And that book inspired me to write my whole series of war on drugs books. So it's, it's crazy that she was inspired by me to do that, sent me the book, and then I was inspired by her sending me the book to how we've changed each other's lives. I think that's so cool. I think it's awesome. I think yeah. you must be blown away at the audience you have now. And and, and you are affecting lives, surely, in a positive I, I way. I feel very privileged that so many people are interested in my story and that it has reached so many people. And we just get love and support just coming in all day long on the comments. It got you know I used to always read all the comments and keep up with everything, but it's so much now I can't even keep up with it. But I do try and, of course, and read yeah. as much of it as possible. And and I guess you form new relationships, like you said, with with these kids who who ended up studying criminology. Has, has that happened a lot over the years? So what has happened through YouTube then is a lot of people have reached out to me, and I've built this wonderful team of people that the, the channel could not have got to where it is without them. Mm. So I've got my guest book at Ash. I've got an assistant, Amy, over in Alabama. I've got, uh, you know, James and Joe who do the videoing and, and the, the, the uh, audio. People like Stu who do my thumbnails, my moderators. And when something gets quite um, big with a lot of traffic, you just can't possibly do it on your own. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So all these kind people just, you know, the, the heart, the kindness of the hearts come into my life and enabling us just, just to keep growing. Do you ever miss drugs? No, I just look at it as a chapter of my life uh, that I went through. With regret? So, yes and no. My mum had a nervous breakdown. My sister had to have counselling. I saw the horror of what drug use led to in the prison where 90% were injecting heroin and yeah. crystal meth and hepatitis C and all that shit. And that was my wake-up call to see what I'd done. I'd put people on that road of drug use. So I knew I couldn't change my past. And that was why I resolved to go out and share my story, so in the hope of people wouldn't make my mistakes. Yeah, I, um, you know, when you talk about this whole ninety percent of taking drugs in in prisons, is, did you ever spend? Because obviously your whole time was in the U.S. prison. Did you ever spend any time in a U.K. prison? No, I did not. Do you, Do you know about the comparison much? Because obviously, 
again, we were talking about this in the car, but it's like the only thing that seems sounds like it sounds like it's real compared to the movies yeah. is this horrible depiction of 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 U.S. prisons. Is yeah. it is it really that bad? Yeah, if you watch Shawshank, it's a couple hours long or whatever, and then you can just leave the room. But I was thinking, my first days in prison, I'm in it now. This is Shawshank, and I can't leave the room. And this is real. This stuff really happens. And you're hearing people's heads getting cracked against toilets. I've seen people's teeth just fly out and bounce on the floor. I saw an old man who wouldn't, I meant to the old man wouldn't stop rambling. I walked past him. I don't know what the gang members had done, but blood just squirted out the back of his head. I saw a guy with his leg pointing in the wrong direction. And they're just a few little examples. And it is constant every single day in Sheriff Joe Pyro's jail, there was violence. Why is it allowed so much? I mean, it may sound naive, but to someone who's never barely, barely, you know, barely even been close to a police station, it's just, you think, surely there's some order here. Like, what, why is it allowed so much? Because to maximise your profits, you want to warehouse as many prisoners as possible. Yeah. So human beings are converted into commodities. To maximise your profits, you want to have the least amount of guards as possible. So you got two guards in a fishbowl watching hundreds of prisoners in four different areas. That was the first jail. That was the um, Towers jail, medium security. And then the, the gangs decide who lives and dies. You got 90% of the prisoners on drugs. Everyone's getting paranoid and crazy because they're on drugs. And most of the violence revolves around the drug business, the debts, and that the gangs have completely got the prison systems all over the world. From my podcast, I now know from all these people who've interviewed in prison all over the world, drug gangs all over the world completely run and control the prisons. And again, this is a function of drug laws, creating this black market mm. that gangsters and criminals profit from all day long. What, and, and say a, a prison in Texas could, could be connected to a prison in Venezuela, as far as the, the, the gangs can be connected. So there's this communication around all over the world in that sense as well. Well, the drugs flow through all of them the same, and the money flows through all of them the same. But each country has its own gangs in charge. So Texas, if you're white, that would be the Aryan Brotherhood. Yeah. We just did a podcast on a Texas Aryan Brotherhood's crystal meth chemist. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah. Would you mind elaborating on that? So, so. Yeah, yeah, he's an English guy who ended up um, being like the Walter White for an Aryan Brotherhood shot caller. But you, you get called that on the, in, the, in the ecstasy world. <laughs> <laughs> You're the, ex the Walter White of the ecstasy, ecstasy Well, yeah, world. you've got Texas, uh -huh. and then you've got New Mexico where Walter White was, mm -hmm. and then you've got Arizona, and then California. So all the characters you meet in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, it's all very much the same. Your biker gangs, your neo-Nazis, Mexican cartel people, because it's all on the border of Mexico as well. So there's many parallels um, with, with what Walter White did, definitely. What, what do you think kept you alive in prison? Wild man. Really? <laughs> yeah. When I first went in, they, they put like a do not house on us. So Wildman couldn't actually be housed with me right away. And they, they, they boxed me off in high security levels later on to, to split us even more. But because we were in the same jail, Wildman quickly, you know, people knew he was there. Gained a bit of a reputation. Yeah. And we became one of the biggest groups then. So when we were at Catholic Mass or whatever, yeah. Wildman's acting up on the back row and everybody's looking around who's this maniac and he's, yeah. he's with us. He's a good man to get arrested with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess that's on the physical side. What, what do you think, what would you put down your sort of mental stability when you're in there? Put down to in, the, in the in the very first few days. What, well, I think that, and you know, what I find 
fascinating about you is from what I understand, you didn't use at all when you were in there. Mm -hmm. You learned more than you ever learned before and you, you mm -hmm. almost came out better. I, like, like how many people truly could say that? So there's various stages of adaptation. What happened with me was shock. Then you go through acclimatization. So like in the first weeks, you know, the gang members are coming up to me saying, you've got to get that look of shock off your face or else you're going to get preyed on. Mm. Six months later, you've got dead eyes. So you just look completely you know, immune to the violence or anything going on around you. And then over time, you have a routine. And I was in every security level from supermax to minimum. And by the time I'd worked my way down to minimum, two Tonys, my mafia associate friend, he said I, my, my cell was just like my office. I got the blogs, I'm interviewing prisoners, I'm writing their stories down, the mail's coming in, I got all these books, I'm doing my studies. And it just goes faster and faster and faster. And I said to myself, right, I've got to serve six years on this nine and a half year sentence. Two years of that, I'll be asleep. So that leaves four. And for the other four, I'm going to read as many books as possible and, and you know, turn this into the educational opportunity of a lifetime. And in 2006, I read 268 books, <laughs> wrote them all down, rated them. And when I told my sister that, who's got a degree in classical literature, mm. she was like, you lucky bastard. No one could ever do that unless they were like a mad monk in a cave or a prisoner. People have jobs, people have responsibilities, people have kids. You're so lucky to be able to read that much. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it, on one, in one uh, side, it was hellacious. But on the other side, it was rewarding. Do you think that deep discipline that was almost ingrained then, and obviously all the reading, is, is helped you today? Funny enough, two Tonys, he said to me, Sean, you've got the discipline of a samurai. I think you do. Thanks. I, I really, like, from the outside in, we, again, we, when we were listening, we were talking about this. It's like, it's like, it's like it blo so we, we've done, we've done an entrepreneur series, right? Yeah. And the thing that stands out more than anything is, is the, is the determination and the discipline. Yeah. Now you have those in parallels and everything, everything. But it's bordering on mental illness. But I don't think, well, do you think that's call, a problem? Well, man called me the robot. And he's like, you've got to give us breaks between podcasts and all this stuff. And he's right, because it's unbalanced and yoga teaches you to be balanced. So I have a tendency to get unbalanced. Yeah. And during my stock market career, when I was on the phones, you know, in the office, six o'clock, seven o'clock morning sales meeting, working all day, there's a thing called Bob's burnt out broker syndrome. Yeah. I didn't let that pressure out my system. And then it all just exploded into drugs and insanity and crazy behavior. But because I've analyzed that up and down cycle of success and destruction, and I've had therapy with a brilliant therapist um, who really helped me and, and put tools and a mental framework inside me to deal with it. I'm trying to avoid those excesses, but I still have that impetus, that drive to extreme workaholicism, which is not healthy. I'm, but so it does you, achieve, yeah. you do achieve great things and big things. Because arguably you wouldn't even be, uh, not that us interviewing is, is, is some big achievement, but arguably you wouldn't have come, not, not so many people would have come across you and you wouldn't have such a reach if you didn't have this consistency, this approach, this willingness, and also I think quite a genuine uh, want or desire to, to help people as well. Those two things yeah. combined is, is, is great. Yeah. It's a 10-year thing for me, it has been. So when I was a teenager, I said I've got to be a millionaire in the stock market by age 30. Did that. 
going to the ecstasy, you know, within five or ten years, that was that was big. Got into writing books. That took me ten years to, to succeed at writing books and have my own publishing company. YouTube channel was channel was started in two thousand and seven. That took ten years before that started to take off. So for me, what I've learned is, and if young people watching this, then if you've got a goal in life, and you are willing to persevere for that long and put the hours in, you're gonna get there. But most people give up, or they get tripped up, or people get jealous and envious, and sabotage them as well. So there's all these pitfalls, you know. On the, on the, I remember um, in the sales meetings in the stock market, our boss Vic would read us this book called Rhinoceros Success. Okay. And he'd be like, success is an elusive thing, but you're like a rhinoceros charging through the jungle. And like, you just clear the path, but all of a sudden it gets really thick. And like thorns are scraping at your skin and branches are like almost going in your eyes. And you, you're thinking, right, I'm gonna have to turn around now and, and go back. But then you realize no. you've got to keep charging through those challenges because success is just is just right on the other side. Well, to me, that just illustrates like, you know, there truly is no shortcuts, is there? No, there's not. There's not. And one thing drugs is, because when I said that, 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, but five to 10 with ecstasy, drugs can provide an illusory short cut of fast cash. But I was worth a couple of million in the stock market. So even though I made all that money in the drugs, I lost absolutely everything by making that fatal decision to import ecstasy. If materialism is the meaning of life for some people, which it was for me back then, it's most certainly not now. But if, if, if that's it, if you're about making money, then if I'd have stayed on that path of just slow and steady progress from being a teenager in the stock market, could probably worth about 10 million right now. Yeah, well, I... <laughs> but I learned that happy, that's not happiness. Happiness is in your thoughts and in your heart. And it's your thoughts that determine that. And you can totally control your reaction to all the things going on around you in life, even when things get rough. And falling back on stoic philosophy, quotes like Epictetus, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter what anyone says to you, they can get in your face and say, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to murder your entire family. You could get really upset with that person and there could be a situation. Or you could just tell yourself, you know, this, this person's obviously mentally ill and having a bad day. And just, just smile and say, I hope you have a better day and walk away from the situation. How hard is that though? It's very hard because we have this thing called the amygdala, don't we? Someone gets in your face and you've got this reptilian response whereby you want to do something about it. So Stoic philosophy teaches us if we constantly go back to the texts and remind ourselves over and over and over again, this is a lifelong task that you've got to do. You lay down this framework that puts a circuit breaker in your brain so that you don't have that instant emotional response or maybe it just doesn't go away right away, but over time it is mitigated you're not reacting as much, you're not reacting as much, so less trouble is likely to ensue. Is there a number Is there a number one book for you that had the most impact or stayed with you the most, considering what you're talking about so, now? Oh, on, 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 what, on philosophy? Yeah, well, I mean, generally speaking, it doesn't necessarily have to be philosophy. So the but... Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. 
Um, many books have got the quotes of Epictetus in them. Yeah. One that two Tonys really liked was The Great Thoughts. I think it's by George Selds. We would just dip into that and discuss various philosophers. Nietzsche's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Eke Homo, E-C-C-E-H-O-M-O. I actually think I've got that, that at home and I've never read it. Do you know how to pronounce it? No. No, okay. I can't remember. That one as well, that one really amused me because he's got chapters, it's really in your face chapters like why I am so smart, <laughs> why I write such great books. Yeah. And he's, he just takes the piss out of all the other belief systems. Did you read much Jung or any other psychology as well? Carl Jung. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started out um, doing, like, courses through the mail and getting textbooks in philosophy and psychology. And I noticed that all these names kept coming up. Freud. Yeah, Jung, Freud, Jung, Nietzsche. From yeah. uh, Nietzsche. And then, like, one textbook would say something about them and another textbook would say something about them. I mean, hold on a minute. These guys, are, they're saying different things. I need to start reading all the original texts. So I've got all the original texts from Freud, Jung, Nietzsche, Fromm, and and dozens of others, and just kept going through them all. And then I formed my own philosophy of anti-dogmatism, because I saw the textbooks had an agenda, and they were taking things to suit their agenda. Hmm. So I was asked... As, I, I, as in... Depict a certain viewpoint that they, they wanted you to. Yeah, so you hear a lot of people a say... A conclusion or judgment. A yeah. lot of people say, you know, Freud um, is, is anti-women and all this stuff, mm. so you have to dismiss his entire work. But that's ridiculous because there's something in every belief system that you can take that you can use to benefit your life. So my philosophy became anti-dogmatism and this, like, eclectic collection of snippets from all the great philosophers and psychologists that I could use in my everyday life. Which probably gave you quite a lot of balance to this day. Hopefully it did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's true. It's like, but I, I wonder if that, like looking back at your story, if that pushed you through the addiction issue in prison. What pushed me through the addiction issue was seeing the horror of drug use around me. It scared you that I, much? I thought I was a wild and crazy party person. They were 10 times wilder and crazier than me, the people in the jail. Then having to go deep inside myself and understand how my anxiety was rooted in things that happened in my childhood, including getting bullied. And I remember... Um, Years after I'd done all that therapy, I was back in the UK, I was at the Karate Dojo, and I was doing a lineup with some black belts. So in a lineup, you just have to, there's a line of black belts, and you have to fight every single one of them without a rest, and they go to the back of the queue and rest. Right. So I was, oh, it's horrible, it's terrifying. So I was fighting all these black belts and um, the road gone down, road gone down. At the end of it, I started having flashbacks to when these drunks tried to murder me when I was a teenager and I'd just gone to pass, I passed my driver's license test. I'd just gone to fill up mum's little red car with petrol. So they got me on the floor, kicking me in the head. One has an iron bar, bam, knocking pieces of my teeth out. So I got these veneers here on my teeth and um, they basically left me for dead. So at the end of the lineup, 
I'm laying down on the floor and I just started to have flashbacks to almost getting beat to death by those drunks. And it made me realise that a lot of my behaviour revolving around my anxiety had been shaped by that incident. So you have these occasional epiphanies, either through therapy, or in that case, it was the physical trauma of these black belts attacking me and smashing me mm. that brought that to the surface. And over time, these things put your demons at rest. Well, I call them wolves. In my book, Party Time, I write about the wolves, howl, always howling for me to come out, the wolf pack. I hear that dance music and the wolf pack. I can hear them howling. I've got to go out and dance. I've got to party. I'm a person of the night. I've got to rave. I was like that for over 10 years, the wolf pack. Always talking about the wolves. Even before I wrote the book, I was always talking about the wolves. So now I view these wolves as like I put them in a cage inside me, but they are still there. And in the Jungian sense, you're harnessing your shadow side. So you've got to be able to transform that energy of the dark things that have happened into your past into positive activity. And if you stay on the positive activity track, you're not going to get visited by a SWAT team. You're not going to get killed. You know, good things will happen in your life. So you can come through the other side of, of dark things happening to you as long as you can trans learn to transform the energy. But learning to transform the energy is not easy because you've got to confront not. your demons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you won't confront your demons because they're rooted in your childhood trauma and you've buried it and you don't want to look at it. Because when you look at it, it's ugly and it, it's p painful. So sometimes it, 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 it's like, I don't know if it was Freud who wrote that, it's like um, a lighthouse flash in your subconscious. It's constantly there flashing flashing and affecting your behavior but you're not addressing it you're not dealing with it and but it can it, it can build and build and build until you explode and it, it was really weird you know to have that line up and that just to come out of me like that and just to have that epiphany and just realize i've just released this so it's clearing out of me it's clearing out of me is, is that i guess important that element of you were pushed so far out your comfort zone yes that's that was that definitely was that, yeah I was pushed completely out of my comfort zone as a person with anxiety to just have to fight black belt after black belt with no rest. But I don't stand a chance. These guys could just knock my head off. Yeah. And I've got no choice. I've got to fight them one yeah. after the other. <laughs> and they are beating the shit out of me. And I've just got to stand there and keep doing my best. <laughs> it, it does push you beyond your comfort zone. You, you know, when it you, teaches you a lesson. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we have to like remind people who are maybe struggling from addiction or think they're leading towards addiction is... is all the elements you talked about alongside, you must push yourself out inside your comfort zone in a sober sense, in a physical sense, in a mental sense. And that usually gives you the strength, I think. And I'm not someone who's particularly suffered from addiction, but I've got friends who have. It gives you feel like you've got more control over who you are. Definitely. And for people struggling with addiction, they've got to know that they're struggling with addiction. Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know what addiction was properly. But would you, would you consider yourself drugs. an addict? Or would you consider well, yourself some, this, some, this, someone who was in an environment where it encouraged it? This was the wake-up moment. The therapist in prison said to me, Sean, are you a drug addict? No. Why do you think you're not a drug addict? A drug addict lives under a bridge, goes out shoplifting all day, and they're stealing to get money for the heroin. I'm just a weekend warrior, a party person. He says, Sean. All, got, these, all of this is a form of addiction, basically. He says, Sean, I've got news for you. 
you know you're an addict when your use of drugs starts to affect your life, your relationships, your job. He goes, take a look around you right now. <laughs> and I look, I look around and I see like a little grimy window with like a gun tower outside and a big old redneck prison guard. Yeah. And he, and he goes, take a look around you right now. Has using drugs affected your, your life, life? <laughs> your relationship, your work? Like, Holy fucking shit, I'm a drug addict. Yeah. And I don't like to label people, uh, but I had to acknowledge that to get through it. Now, Russell Brand says things like, you know, I'm an addict. I can't even do alcohol for the rest of my life. That's the gateway to doing all crack and all this other stuff. I don't feel like that. I feel like... You, do, you don't scream addict, to be honest. I feel like yeah. I, I acknowledged I was an addict and I've evolved into someone who has got addictive tendencies, but I don't feel any, you know need to go back to drugs or do anything like that I, I choose not to drink I never was a big drinker but yeah. when I got out of prison I was going to pubs of witness drinking and um, getting that hangover not being able to do any work and all that kind of stuff as the robot that was affecting me but then when I moved down south I joined the body combat class and my fitness instructor Tony I started hanging out with him and he was the life and soul of every party he, was a, he, would, go, he would stay out the latest and he wasn't drinking and I thought, you can actually go out without being on any substance, including alcohol, and be the life and soul of a party. It can be done. And again, that was another lesson for me, and I stopped drinking from that moment. You know, some people believe, like, addiction is inherent. Uh, I am open to it, but I, I always feel it's ex life experiences alongside uh, continued environment. as a, Because to me, that sounds like, that's was it for you and everyone I speak to yeah it's not it's not like it's in their DNA some people suggest that but I'm I'm maybe naively or not I'm, I'm struggling to say, see that from everyone I've spoke to in the past that that is the case it's very much like you said tra tra uh, tra traumatic experiences or issues in childhood that may have may encourage you to ignore them emotionally alongside the environmental element do you, do you agree with that well it's an ongoing debate isn't it nature versus nurture and I've looked at both sides of the argument. So, for example, I met a guy in prison who had fetal alcohol syndrome. Which means what? His mum was an alcoholic. Right, okay. Which damaged him and, and gave him like an addictive tendency. Mm -hmm. So things can definitely be inherited. And then along comes life with all of its trials and tribulations that... So that makes it even worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And thank you for doing this, by the way. Yeah, no um, worries. It's, it's Thanks been for great. going all this way. No, yeah. no, pleasure. Um, yeah, yeah. First thing I'll ask is, what's your favourite movie? Oh, my goodness. My favourite movie. <laughs> um, there's, there's a few, actually. So, what's that one called with Russell? Is it Russell Crowe, The Gladiator? Yeah. Love Gladiator. But the one that makes me cry every time, and I've watched it about three or four times now, I think I cry more every time I watch it is The Road <laughs> by Cormac McCarthy. Okay. It's about a son and, and uh, the dad in a post-apocalyptic world, and they're walking down this road where there's been all this like nuclear destruction or whatever, and the, the dad's just telling the son, we're going to get to the coast, you're going to be all right. But there's like predators and cannibals, and he's got to protect them from them. They've only got a few bullets left. 
It's, oh, it's so moving. Um, so that's that, that's so, so Gladiator was was the violence and um, the hero story. That's quite dark. What I just told you. On a lighter side, perhaps the movie I've watched the most in my life is the Rocky Horror Picture Show from from that came out when I was a teenager. Um, what else is there? Sorry, if, if that's your if that's your top three, we can go. Yeah, yeah, they're probably my top three. Yeah. What what what's your best quality? My best quality. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, God, that's like a question that's going to make me sound egotistical, no matter what I say, isn't it? No, 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 not at all. No. That's a trick question. No, I think I my think... ego is no longer as big as the Grand Canyon. I've yeah. got to tread carefully. <laughs> What is my best quality? Isn't it? Well, this is the my point. My newfound it's so... modesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I know what you're saying. That's almost a double-edged answer. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. In, in, in the element of the philosophy that you talked about, you still acknowledge your qualities, right? So... You know what I like about what's happened since I come out of prison is all these wonderful people helped me when I got out of prison I didn't know anybody. And now that the platform has got to where it is, I've been able to help other people who've just got out of prison. People like Jamie Morgan Kane, my first podcast guest. He was born on the Isle of Man and sold to an American family as a baby. He's in prison in California for 30 plus years for a crime he hasn't done. Finds out he's not even an American citizen and de they deport him back to London where he only knows one person, his pen pal from through prisoners abroad and he's got nothing in his life. And then we put him out there. He got a book deal through Mirror Books. They're doing a second book with him. We took him to the Isle of Man and he did all these talks and he wants to move wow. to the Isle of Man. And we've seen this transformation in his life. Plus all these, you know, victims of um, abuse that we've interviewed and they, they were so nervous about coming on. And then all this love and support from all over the world came in for them. And you can see how that's boosted their lives. So... I'm most proud of the effects that the YouTube coming on the YouTube channel is having and real world changes in people's lives. Okay. Um, two more questions. Yeah, right? go for it. Uh, firstly, are you a happy man? Yeah, like I say, man, I wake, wake up, up with a smile. With a smile. I don't know if you saw my bag of monkey nuts. I wake up and the squirrels are lined up. See that little fence behind you? The squirrels are like lined up waiting for me. Like, <laughs> I just throw the nuts at them. They're all fighting over the nuts, and it's so funny. And then at night, and I'm a vegetarian, but I got loads of chicken in my fridge. At night, um, as it starts to get dark, you see the white stripes appear at the edge of the trees there, and they're these massive badgers. Right. I throw all this chicken down, and then they run down, they run down. And the other night, um, I heard this weird noise outside, like, <laughs> like, what is getting killed? Is yeah. like is a badger trying to kill a fox or something? Because there's a skinny fox out there as well. I call it the crackhead fox. And um, <laughs> I looked outside. It wasn't a badger trying to kill the crackhead fox. It was a. It was a. For the first time, I've been here for a couple of years. It was a baby badger following the mum around, making this really, really weird noise. So, so, what, so, what's, so you, what's you Tony's taught me? Who, yeah. uh, he was like a mafia associate serving 141 years, but he was also a natural philosopher, self-taught in prison. He taught me to appreciate the beauty of small things. And two Tony's died in 2010 from liver cancer, from his own drug taking. But he said to raise a drink to him from time to time and, and mention him and, and, and look up, and he told me, he said, Sean, 
you know, I'm here in prison um, where there's no, I can't, you know, smell the roses. But, you know, there's some Arizona Departments of Correction aftershave I can smell. <laughs> and he says, you could be out there, raise a glass to me, always remember to smell the roses and appreciate the small things in life. Because when you appreciate the small things in life, you don't go looking for trouble in all the wrong places. Yeah. Well, cheers to two Tonys. Then. Yeah, um, yeah, what a great guy. And the final question is, what do you hope for on your deathbed? Oh, my goodness. I've never been asked that. What do I hope for on my deathbed? So, like, what do I hope happens on my deathbed? What Could, do I hope? It's, it's always an unusual, it's always an unusual I mean, like the answer. moments before I die, what am I going to do? Well, I mean, I mean, what do you hope you I mean, can... I like, get rave music Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, you might do, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, what do you hope you can look back on? Oh, what we're going to look back yeah, on? and look back on fondly. Got you. So, but it could just be that. That's quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> just hopefully the rave scene will come back and then I'll, and then I'll fade into the universe. Oh, there's this really um, amazing Russian DJ I've discovered during the pandemic, Korolova. Okay. I'll, I'll probably, if, like, if I was on my deathbed right now, I would be listening to some Korolova. <laughs> <laughs> just keep, keep, keep keeping you alive in the, in the heartbeat. No, but looking back, to answer that seriously then, you know, you can't take your money with you. Yeah. So I'm going to look back at all the hours I put into trading the stock market. No. No. You're going to look back, I'm going to look back at friendships, family, relationships, and how, you know, people's lives were influenced and changed by what I did and what my viewers are helping do. And it's a huge thank you to the viewers because they've suggested all of our guests and they've really helped shape the channel and it's gone in the direction that they've steered it. So, you know, a huge thank you to all the viewers watching this for helping us create this magical thing that's cool. able to influence people's lives. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, I, must, yeah. I must say, I really do commend you on it. Like, it's it's, it's been amazing to watch as a sort of fan or someone who's who's, who's managed to see your journey. It's, it's, it's really, really Cheers, cool. Cheers, thank you. Arizona Prison Handshake is that one, then that one, that then, one. Then, then bumping. Cool. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Right, just don't kill me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs>